think this is the first time I've had to step around rocks to preach. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's pray uh, once more as we open the Word of God. Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you for your inspired holy word. We recognize that it has authority over our lives and over everything that happens in this world. We recognize that you are the sovereign God who is yet working out your plans on this planet, in this cosmos, in fact. Father, may we hear your word well this morning. We pray your Spirit's help. This is a very busy season. Many of us have our minds on all sorts of things, but we pray for concentration that you'd help us to listen well and help me, Lord, to decrease as you, Jesus, increase. We want to raise your profile here at Snowden Baptist, and may this be a step in that path this morning as we concentrate and focus on the glory and the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we have been jetting through uh, the Old Testament over the past three weeks to see specifically how Jesus Christ is identified and described in the pages of the Old Testament years and even centuries before his birth in Bethlehem. Last week, uh, we took a tour, if you were with us, through Samuel and Kings, and one of the major chapters that we landed on there was 2 Samuel 7, where God makes that breathtaking covenant with David. God was going to ensure that an everlasting kingship would emerge in the lineage of the person of David. But then we ended up last week noting how the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled to Assyria in 722 BC, and we also landed last week for a time on 2 Kings 25, where the southern kingdom of Judah was also exiled to the nation of Babylon in 587 BC. At that time, Jerusalem was destroyed ransacked and destroyed, and the whole idea of kings in the lineage of David had seemingly collapsed, had come to an end. And so we asked the question, what had happened to the promise that God had made in 2 Samuel 7? What did the exile of 587 BC mean for God's promise of an everlasting kingship in the lineage of David. Well, the focus this morning is to see how the latter prophets, so in other words, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets, uh, Daniel, how they emphasized hope for Israel and a future for Israel, even when Israel found herself under the divine judgment that was the exile. And what we want to see especially here this morning is how the prophets reaffirmed for exiled Israel that God's promises to David back in 2 Samuel 7, those promises of an everlasting kingdom in David's line, how those promises were still valid and still true even though Israel and Judah found themselves exiled to Assyria and later to Babylon because of their sin against God. Nevertheless, God in his grace was still going to keep his promises of an everlasting kingdom that would be ruled by some descendant of David. So where I'd like to start this morning is at those places in the prophets that we are not going to really land on. For the sake of time, I've had to be very selective, of course, of passages that we will land on. But here, to begin, are some passages in the prophets that, just for the sake of time, we're not going to discuss in any detail. These are places where God's promise of a Davidic everlasting throne were reaffirmed to Israel 
even as Israel found herself in exile or about to be exiled. And just so you know, for now, I'm skipping Isaiah and I'm skipping Amos because a little later we want to spend a good deal of time landing on passages in both those books. So let me read simply to you seven passages now from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Micah, where God reaffirmed to exiled Israel that his promise concerning David and an everlasting throne through David's descendants was still valid. Writing in the 8th century BC was the prophet Hosea. Hosea directed his message primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel. In Hosea 3 verse 5, we get this fascinating little notice that after the time of Israel's exile, a time would come when Israel would seek the Lord their God and David their king. So the promise there is that a king in the line of David would emerge on the throne once again, after the exile. God's ancient promises to David were yet true, they were yet valid. God is faithful. And then writing in the same century, in the 8th century BC again, was the prophet Micah. We're going to flip around in our Bibles a lot this morning, I hope you're there with me. Micah prophesied down in the southern kingdom of Judah. In Micah 5, verse 2, we have that very well-known, very famous Christmas text where Micah prophesied that in some day, future to him, the ruler over Israel would emerge from Bethlehem, just as David himself had had his origins in Bethlehem. So again, there's another place in the prophets where a future Davidic king was prophesied, one who would emerge after Israel's time of exile. Well, jumping ahead a little bit in time now to the 7th century BC, we have the prophet Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, the prophet wrote these words, The days are coming, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So Jeremiah said to those in Judah who were about to suffer exile to Babylon, that God's promise to David remained true despite the exile, a new king from the line of David, would one day come, and he would be called, very interestingly, the Lord, our righteousness. Well, still in Jeremiah, we have Jeremiah 30, verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, God talks about the exile coming to an end one day. He says, I will break the yoke off my people's necks, And will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So, the promise was that the exile would one day come to an end for the people of God, at which point God would raise up in their midst a new David of some kind, some shape or form. Still in Jeremiah, let's go to chapter 33 and verses 14 through 16. Chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch 
sprout from David's line, he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. So again there, we have additional reaffirmations from the Lord to the exiled people that the promises to David were yet live. They were yet valid. A branch would one day sprout from the line of David. Well, over in the book of Ezekiel, we have similar promises going on there. Ezekiel wrote during the exile to Babylon in the 6th century B.C., And in Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, God says through Ezekiel, I will place over my flock one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Again, we need to understand that Ezekiel writes this hundreds of years after David had already been put six feet under. Ezekiel prophesies here about a new David. Someone in David's line whom God would place over the people of Israel after their time of exile. And then over in Ezekiel 37, we have another one. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 25. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And so there, friends, we have seven passages from the prophets, just to whet our appetites. Seven passages where God affirmed to his exiled people that his promises concerning David and the everlasting throne of David were still binding and still true. What we want to do now is add more to the Mosaic, Let's spend time landing now on a couple of places in Amos and in Isaiah where we have yet more prophecy affirming God's promises to David. Now, both Amos and Isaiah prophesied, if you're keeping track, in the 8th century B.C. The book of Amos starts on page 886 of your pew Bible, if you want to flip there. The book of Amos is focused, for the most part, it's focused on indicting or convicting the northern kingdom of Israel for their sin against God. In fact, it's only right at the end of Amos, in chapter 9, where the first ray of hope appears suddenly. Chapter 9 begins with seven verses that promise the demise of Israel, the destruction of Israel. But then in verse 8, we notice a little shaft of light springs up there. God says that even though Israel will be destroyed, he says, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. So there would be some hope for Israel. And then it's verses 11 and 12 that we want to focus on. God promises in verse 11, notice, that a day would come When David's fallen tent, or in some versions, David's fallen booth, would be restored. Now again, in 587 BC, there came the apparent end of the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of David. Judah was exiled, and it looked like in that moment that the succession of kings in the line of David had come to an end. That great, glorious house of David appeared to have collapsed in on on itself, and it didn't look like 
that broken kingship, that interrupted kingship, would ever be restored. When Amos 9.11 talks about the fallen tent or the fallen booth of David, it's talking about the Davidic kingship in ruins because of exile. And probably when God says in Amos 9.11 that he would repair the broken places, notice, of David's kingdom, what he's talking about there is that old breach in the kingdom when under King Rehoboam, the kingdom had split into north and south. God would one day reunite, somehow, all twelve tribes. God would reconstitute Israel. And a new king in the line of David would appear. That old split kingdom of north and south, now laying in exile, would be restored and repaired under a new David. A new king who would arise on the scene. And we notice in Amos 9.12, notice carefully, that the nations, the nations, say amen nations, the nations would be incorporated into this refurbished, restored kingdom of Israel. Israel's purpose, to begin with, according to Exodus 19, 4-6, Israel's purpose to begin with was to be God's instrument to bless the nations. God had not forgotten about his plan to bring blessing to the nations of the earth. And even Israel's wayward sin, even Israel's exile out of the land because of her sin, was not going to hinder the plans and purposes of God. A day would come, says God in Amos 9.12, a day would come when Israel would be reincorporated and restored under a new David, who would have authority not, not only over Israel, but over the nations. So then Amos 9, 11, and 12, I think, is another very key text to add to the seven that we breezed through earlier. It's another text in the prophets where God reaffirms that the promises he made to David about an everlasting kingdom in David's line were still true, despite the exile. But now we want to go to Isaiah. Now, I think out of all the prophets, (laughs) Isaiah's painting, if we want to put it that way, his painting of David, Isaiah's painting of the future king who would come in David's line is especially staggering. Now, I want you to track with me here. Let's think through this together. Now, it's long been noted that the book of Isaiah divides rather nicely into two halves. We have Isaiah 1 through 39, chapters which are set primarily in the lifetime of the prophet Isaiah. And then we have Isaiah 40 through 66, which deal primarily with events future to the prophet Isaiah, his lifetime, So Isaiah 40 through 66 deals with events which were to occur in the 6th century BC and even beyond that. Some events are still future to us that are in the book of Isaiah. Another thing to note about these two halves of Isaiah is simply this. That in the first half, so Isaiah 1 through 39, the first half, there are several texts in that first half, which speak of a future king who would come in the lineage of David. That first half of Isaiah speaks often of a coming Davidic king, while in the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, we get all these passages about the servant of God. This figure who is called the servant who would come on mission for the Lord God. So king in the first half of Isaiah, servant in the second half. Now I think a good argument can be made that both the future king, who is prophesied in Isaiah 1 through 39, and the servant, who is prophesied in Isaiah 40 through 66, is the same individual. 
The one that Isaiah prophesied who was to come in the future was to be a servant king, if we want to put it that way. A servant king. Now, why do I say that king and servant in Isaiah is the same person? Well, for one thing, both the king in the first half of Isaiah and the servant in the second half are endowed with, filled with, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit rests on the coming Davidic king in Isaiah 11.2, and the Spirit rests on the servant in Isaiah 42.1. They're both endowed with, filled with the Spirit. Further, both the king in the first half of Isaiah and the servant in the second half bring righteousness and justice to those who are entrusted to them. Isaiah 11.5 for the king, and Isaiah 42.1 for the servant. And last, in Isaiah 37.35, King David is called God's servant. Which, again, brings together those two ideas of king and servant. So again, I think the king... In the first half of Isaiah and the servant in the second half can be identified as the same person, the servant king. All right. So what does the book of Isaiah tell us about the identity and about the character of this servant king in the line of David who was to come at some point in the future after the lifetime of Isaiah? What does it tell us about him? Let's go first to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 is another one of those classic Christmas texts. Verses 6 and 7 tell us, this is a stunning text, tell us about what the future king would look like. So verse 6 says, follow it with me, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Notice there that this future king over Israel would be born. That is, he would come into the world the way everybody else does. He would be born for us, for to us a child is born, a human being is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. That is, this child would be a ruler, he would be a king. He would have a government, and, says Isaiah, he will be called wonderful. Perhaps some sort of person who works wonders. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. And right here, we discover that this child king who was to be born to Israel would be no ordinary Run-of-the-mill child, if there is such a thing as a run-of-the-mill child. (laughs) He would, in fact, be called Mighty God. You see this? So, in other words, he would transcend humanity in some sort of way. Mighty God, but yet he would be born as a human being. And, says Isaiah... This future monarch would also take the titles, notice, Everlasting Father. Well, that strains the limits of our understanding, doesn't it? Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Wow. As Walter Kaiser has put it, all these titles in Isaiah 9-6, he says, confer such superiority... And such excellence to this coming child that no other child in history can ever compare with him. And then Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, I don't know about you, but with most human governments... We are fairly glad, are we not, when their term of office is up? (laughs) After four years, maybe eight years. This child that Isaiah prophesied would have a never-ending government. 
an eternal rule, an everlasting government. This child, says Isaiah, would reign on David's throne, notice that carefully, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So I hope we can see here that Isaiah 9, does it not, it ramps up the light on the future monarch. So our dimmer switch that we talked about in the first week of this series, our dimmer switch now is turned up. Lots of light on the future king in the line of David who was to come. And then Isaiah 11. Let's go to the first verse of Isaiah 11. We're going somewhere with all this. You know where we're going with all of this. I'm excited. Remember, so Isaiah 11, remember that in in 587 B.C., I'm repeating this lots just so we get it. The southern kingdom was exiled to Babylon. At that time, the glorious tree that had been the ongoing dynasty of kings in the line of David, that tree at the exile had effectively been chopped down. In that moment of Jerusalem's capture and the temple's destruction by Babylon, King Zedekiah of Judah had watched his sons be slain right before his eyes. And then his eyes were gouged out by the Babylonians. An inglorious, very sad, seeming end to the line of kings in David's name. Well, Isaiah 11.1, notice it talks about the stump. Notice that word there. It talks about the stump of that formerly great tree that had been chopped down at the exile. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So in other words, folks, a little green, lively little branch would one day appear from that stump that was the Davidic kingship. And, verse 2, this lively shoot or branch from the stump would be saturated by, caricaturized by, the Spirit of God. Notice in the text, the future monarch in David's line would be spirit-filled, spirit-endowed, spirit-enabled, so close to God that Well, if you didn't know any better, you might think he was God. Well, over in the second half of Isaiah, so now we're in Isaiah 40 through 66. Again, we have all those passages that describe the servant of God, who we argued already is to be equated, I think, with the future king who is described in the first half of the book. Oh, but wait a minute, you say, as a Bible scholar. Wait a minute, doesn't Isaiah 41.8 tell us very plainly that Israel is the servant? And doesn't Isaiah 44.1 also tell us very clearly that Israel is the servant? Not to mention Isaiah 44.21 And Isaiah 45, 4, in those places, it's Israel who bears the title servant very clearly. Therefore, the servant cannot be some individual person who can be equated with the king. To which I reply, yes, true. However, There are several other passages, and I hope you're working with me here. There are several other passages in this section of Isaiah where the servant is described at great length, but he remains unnamed. He's not necessarily Israel. And in at least one of those places that we're going to go to in a minute, the servant is clearly distinguished from Israel. He is not the nation of Israel, rather he's some other individual who comes to the rescue of Israel. All right, Dunbar, so which is it then? (laughs) Is Isaiah's servant the nation of Israel, or is the servant some individual who is perhaps 
one and the same with the king in the first half of the book? Answer, yes. (laughs) The servant is Israel, and the servant is some unnamed individual who was to come. One way we might put it is like Chris Wright has put it, helpfully, I think, in his book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. Listen very carefully to what Wright says here, because I think he's bang on. He says this. I'll read it slowly. The individual servant is, at one level, distinct from Israel, because he has a mission to Israel, to challenge Israel, to call them back to God. Yet, at another level, the servant is identified with Israel, and similar language is used of both. This is because, he says, in the surprising purposes of God, the servant enables the original mission of Israel to be fulfilled. I'll read that again. The servant enables the original mission of Israel to be fulfilled. That is, through him, God's justice Liberation and salvation will be extended to the nations. It was Israel's job to begin with. Now the servant picks it up. The universal purpose of the election of Israel is to be achieved through the mission of the servant. Close quote. So then the servant of Isaiah is an individual who was to come who so identified with Israel and the calling of Israel, and the mission of Israel, that he could rightfully be called Israel. Now I want you to come with me to Isaiah 49, to look at one key text, where we find the servant and his mission detailed here and described. Isaiah 49 starts with the servant speaking. The servant is speaking here, and he says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was, what? Born. So again, the servant king has a birth. He's born. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. The servant will have a God-given name. Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Now listen. He said to me, you are my servant Israel. So notice there, the servant is explicitly called Israel, is he not? You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor, verse 4. Now, in in verse 4, it's interesting. Suddenly, the servant appears depressed. He says, but I have said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with My God. Verse 5. How does Yahweh respond to the servant's sadness in verse 4? Watch this. Verse 5. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to do what? To bring back Jacob to him and gather Israel to himself. Notice that very carefully. To bring, the servant is to bring back Jacob to God and gather Israel to God. The servant says here in verse 5 that part of his mission was to gather Israel and bring Israel back to God. Meaning that the servant can't be Israel now. Israel doesn't gather Israel and bring Israel back to God. The servant does this. This individual who closely identifies with Israel brings Israel back to God. So again, the servant is Israel in verse 3, but the servant is distinct from Israel in verse 5. Very interesting what the prophet does here. 
Yahweh says to the servant in verse 6, Oh, you're sad, servant, feeling a little depressed? It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So in other words, your mission servant can't just be limited to Israel, to the task of bringing Israel back to God. No, Yahweh says in verse 6, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. And Gentiles we ought to be shouting about now. A light for the Gentiles, for those peoples outside of Israel. The nations that you may, what? Now the way the NIV has rendered the Hebrew here is not necessarily wrong. It might be right. Indeed, we might render it that you, servant, may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a respectable translation of the Hebrew. But on the other hand, a strong argument can be made for the way the old King James rendered this last part of verse 6. Listen carefully. In the King James, it reads like this. That thou mayest be my salvation to the end of the earth. Notice the difference? That thou, that you, servant, may be my salvation to the end of the earth. The servant in that rendering, the servant himself, was appointed by God to be salvation to the end of the earth. Now isn't this stunning? It would appear in Isaiah 49.6 that what was being prophesied, and keep in mind this is several centuries before the wise men, before the shepherds in the field and Mary and Joseph and the baby, what was being prophesied hundreds of years before any of that was nothing less than a servant king who would come one day to do nothing less than save the world. This is astounding prophecy here in Isaiah 49.6. But now over in Isaiah 53, our mosaic continues. Something I think even more mind-bending is prophesied in Isaiah 53. Namely this, that the servant king who was to come would end up suffering. The king, suffering, not for his own wrongdoing or his own transgressions, but rather this righteous servant king, Isaiah 53, 11, he's righteous. This righteous servant king would come and would suffer the punishment that was due to others for their sins. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him, on the servant king, the iniquity of us all. Now, what kind of person would this be who was to come? Today in the prophets, we've seen that despite Israel's dark exile, God reaffirmed through his prophets that the promise he made to David back in 2 Samuel 7 remained valid. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, all of them prophesied the restoration of the everlasting throne of David after exile. And Isaiah in particular fleshed out, didn't he, the idea of the, the identity of the servant king who was to come. 
Here we go. Get ready to worship. As we noted last week, Jesus of Nazareth. Born to Mary and Joseph. Jesus in the very first verse of the New Testament is called Son of David. Not by coincidence. Right at the very start of the New Testament, God is keen to tell us that Jesus is the Son of David. The one who comes, finally, after all those centuries of no revelation between Testaments, after the exile, Jesus comes. The shoot from Jesse... The new David had come in Jesus Christ. And over in Luke 1 verse 32, the angel Gabriel confirms, doesn't he, that Jesus will occupy the everlasting throne of his father David. And Jesus is the servant of God. Prophesied in the latter half of Isaiah at the baptism of Jesus. God speaks from heaven and he says what? He says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Those words, of course, are striking in their similarity to Isaiah 42.1 where God had said concerning the servant, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. In whom I delight. Was God identifying Jesus at his baptism as the servant of Isaiah? In Luke 4, in his inaugural sermon in the synagogue of Nazareth, the Bible text that Jesus read from, not coincidentally, was from the servant section of Isaiah. From Isaiah 61. Jesus stood up opened the scroll, and read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus read that, and then he rolled up the scroll, handed it to the synagogue attendant, and sat down and said to the people, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus knew his identity. He knew that he was the servant who was prophesied in Isaiah, the long-awaited servant king. You want to write these down in Matthew eight seventeen, and again in Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. Matthew assures us in those places that in Jesus we have none other than the servant of Isaiah who was prophesied. Matthew links the servant songs of Isaiah explicitly to the works and the actions of Jesus Christ. The servant in Isaiah came both to restore Israel to God and to be a light to the Gentiles according to Isaiah 49. Jesus does both. Have you ever thought, it's no coincidence that Jesus gathers around him how many disciples? Twelve disciples. One for each of the tribes in Israel. Jesus calls them his little flock. Language that was used for the remnant of Israel. And in his reconstitution of a new Israel, Jesus also reveals a new temple that has come in the midst of Israel, namely his own body. In John chapter 2, Jesus was now the locus and the place of God's presence where the old temple in Israel had once been. Jesus reconstitutes Israel. And Jesus is also the light for revelation to the Gentiles that had been prophesied in Isaiah 49.6, when the infant Jesus is first brought to the temple in Luke 2, the aged Simeon identifies him, how? As the light for revelation to the Gentiles who was to come, 
Sure enough, not only does Jesus boldly assert in Luke 4 that Gentiles were always part of God's concern, even back to the days of Elijah, he almost gets stoned for saying that. Not only is that true, in Matthew 8, Jesus also applauds the faith of a Gentile centurion. And it's Jesus who says to us this very morning that our mission as his church is to make disciples out of who? The nations. In Matthew 28, and he says, repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be preached in my name to who? All nations in Luke 24. Indeed, the church is to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, according to Acts 1.8. Jesus came as light to the Gentiles. And as servant, Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. Watch this. The servant king suffers. Amen? And the servant king dies. Not for any sin of his own, but rather he takes the punishment for sin that was due to others. And Jesus himself, watch this, understood himself as the suffering servant king. Jesus proves to us that he understood himself that way in Luke 22. Turn there with me. You have it. Shortly before his arrest, Jesus quoted Isaiah 53.12 out loud. Luke 22.37 has Jesus saying... And he was numbered with the transgressors. So there's our quote from Jesus' lips. Straight from the servant song of Isaiah 53, 12. But then watch what Jesus says next. In Luke twenty two thirty seven, he says. So he says, and he was numbered with the, with the transgressors. I tell you that this must be fulfilled in who? In me, he says. Yes, what is written about me. About me, Jesus says, Isaiah was written about him. What was written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus self-identified then as Israel's servant king. He knew that he was the branch and the shoot from the stump of Jesse, in whom those ancient promises to David of an everlasting throne We're being fulfilled. Friends, Jesus right now is, and then I'm done, is the crucified, risen, eternal king. Amen? Ascended to the supreme place of authority, he lives at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the seed of the woman, the royal king who came to crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the bright morning star the scepter of Jacob. He is Isaiah 9's wonderful counselor, mighty God and prince of peace. Jesus is the king in the lineage of Seth, Abraham, Judah, and David. He is the prophet like Moses, who is born in lowliness and humility, who trusts his father always, and who is anointed as God's Messiah. Jesus is the one greater than Solomon, the one greater than the temple. Jesus is the divine warrior king who leads the victorious conquest over sin, death, and the devil. Jesus is God's crucified and risen Son, the Christ who was to come. And Jesus, the servant king in the line of David, is coming back one day. I pray Soon. Coming back to wrap up history. To end forever the old passing age of horrific war in Syria. To end racial divisions. To do away with depression and anxiety and domestic abuse and cancer, and family strife, and tears, and dying. All of it will be gone forever when he returns. And the new age, the new age that broke into our world initially when he first came, that age of life and bliss, and the actual real presence of God forever, 
No more crying, no more dying. That age will one day overshadow everything. Do you believe it? And it will be our all in all. Now my question to you this morning is, do you believe? I don't care how many years you've been at, in a church faithfully attending. Do you believe? Have you staked yourself, your life, on Jesus Christ? Is he your king and your Lord and your life and your savior and your master and your Messiah and your friend and your God? Will you trust him today as the atoning, suffering servant who has died on the cross in your place as your substitute? Will you stake your life on this one who is the servant king? who has taken the punishment that you deserved for your sin against God. If you have never fled to Jesus in this way for his refuge and his forgiveness and his peace, I want, if you would do this with me, to bow your head right now. Let's have all the church, let's bow our heads and pray with me this way. If you've never done it before, pray this way. Lord, today I have seen something of your glory And I have seen also something of my own lack. Today I've beheld Jesus in the scriptures and I have seen my own sin before you. I have seen that there is no way to approach you, holy God, except through Jesus, your son, the servant king, who went to the cross and died in my place in order... That by his blood I might be forgiven of my sin. Thank you for Jesus. I trust him now as Lord and Savior. And I pray that from this moment on, God, your Holy Spirit would so invade my life that you would help me to discover the path that you have for my future and how I can be part of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that way, I would love to chat with you afterwards and get some literature into your hands and pray with you. Amen. Hear your benediction today. May the eternal and ever-blessed God order what is disordered in your life. May he bring your mind to his truth, your conscience to his law, and your heart to his love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.